So this morning is the first Sunday in the season of Lent. Lent is a, is a word that really just means spring, but the season is about much more than that. It is a season that lasts 40 days minus the Sundays leading up to Easter. And the 40 days are representative of the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness praying and fasting before he began his earthly ministry. It is a, it is a time of reflection. It is a time of repentance. And one of the things that we are called upon to, to reflect on during this time is the obedience of Jesus who gave his life for us all. Several weeks ago, I was uh, praying and meditating in the uh, Ignatian spiritual exercises that I've told you about before and that Kim and I have been doing. And the passage that morning was Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It is the, the very brief account of Mary and Joseph bringing, uh, coming to Bethlehem where they give birth, where they bring Jesus into the world. The last part of that passage reads, Luke 2, verses 6 and 7. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And as I was reflecting and meditating and praying through this passage, I was reflecting on the incarnation, that is what it means for God Almighty to come to us in the flesh. And it suddenly occurred to me that it was not just on Good Friday that Jesus laid down his life for us all. It was, not, it was not just when he breathed his last on the cross that he gave his life for us all. Jesus began to lay down his life for us all from the moment of his conception. Jesus began to lay down his life for us all from the moment of his conception. His whole life from that point on was one long act of surrender. Surrender to the Father God, and surrender to us. Jesus talks about laying down his life in John 10 a lot, but before we get there, we need to set the stage. If you did not hear last week's sermon by Kate and Kurt, do yourself a favor and go back and watch or listen to it. Kate and Kurt sounds like a singing duo, like Donnie and Marie. I don't know. Sonny and Cher. Um, it, was a, it was fantastic. They gave us quite the window into the <clears throat> plight of the blind man whom Jesus heals in John 9 and into the reality that I think all of us need to hear at some time or often in our lives. No matter where we are or what we're going through or what we've done, we need to know that Jesus sees us. It's easy to remember, it rhymes. <laughs> Jesus sees us. He sees our physical needs. He sees our spiritual needs. Jesus sees us clearly. We, however, do not always see him quite as clearly. Such was the case with the Pharisees. And in our passage today, Jesus has a come-to-me moment, or a come-to-Jesus moment that he has with the Pharisees, but it's him, so it's a come-to-me moment. <laughs> Chapters 9 and 10 of John go together. After healing the blind man of his physical blindness, Jesus then leads him to a place of healing his spiritual blindness. The formerly blind man responds to Jesus' statement that he is the Son of Man, a term used to refer to the Messiah. In verse 38 of chapter 9, then the man said, Lord, I believe, <clears throat> and he worshiped him. Then Jesus says something strange, almost like it doesn't fit here. It's like, where are you going with this, Jesus? He's clearly after something more than what it first appears. Verses 39 to 41 of John 9. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? 
And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Jesus sees us clearly. We, however, do not always see Jesus clearly. When John 10 begins, Jesus continues his conversation with the Pharisees. He takes the very practical and real story of the healing of the blind man in John 9, and he turns it into an object lesson, sort of a living parable. He takes a shot at it in verses 1 through 5, which we did not have read and we're not going to read now. Um, And I'll tell you why in a second. But with the apparent inability of the Pharisees to understand what he's saying, he decides to rephrase things. So we don't need to read 1 through 5 because he's going to say it again for us in verse 7 and following. 7 through 10. Therefore, Jesus said again, (laughs) very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And so the imagery here, once again, as we've seen several times in John's gospel, is of stark contrast. There is the gate, and that gate separates those who are on the outside from those who are on the inside. And Jesus is that gate, or literally the door. He is the one through whom all must go. And in opposition to him are someone called thieves and robbers who have tried to lead the sheep astray. This image of entering in through the gate to find safety meant in part, is meant in part to draw us back to Jesus' conversation with the man again in John chapter 9. Jesus heard that the man, because of his growing faith in Jesus, has been, uh, has been thrown out of the synagogue. And so Jesus makes a way for him to be brought in to the sheepfold. He's been thrown out of one place, but Jesus is going to help him come into another. Belief in Jesus as Messiah is how this man walks through the gate. And enters into the kingdom. And that gate is available to all of us. If we find ourselves isolated from God or from others, if we find ourselves in the darkness, Jesus comes to us and he invites us to truly see him as he sees us. He invites us to believe in him and enter into safe pasture. This word believe in the Greek is to entrust oneself to Jesus. It is to have confidence in Jesus. It is to be loyal to Jesus. It is to give our allegiance to Jesus, and it is to honor him. It is to step into orbit around Jesus and to be held in place by the gravity of his character, his divine nature, his love, and his lordship. Put another way, in the culture of the day, when someone gave you a gift in ancient Rome, you returned the favor. Not a thank you note, you returned the favor. You did not earn the gift But culturally, your gratitude for the gift was displayed in a gift in return. This is the language that the New Testament uses for what God has done for us. And what is the gift that we give Christ Jesus in return for his gift of grace and forgiveness? We give him ourselves. We give him our loyalty. We give him our allegiance. It's a lot more than merely believing in our heads that Jesus is the Son of God and that he was raised from the dead. That's important. But it's more than that. It is living our lives as if that were true. It's more than simply believing in our heads that Jesus was the Son of God and that he was raised from the dead. It is living our lives as if that were true because it is. The last half of verse 10, we discover that not only is 
Jesus our way into safety and community in the kingdom, but also, he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus drops the mic. We are not only saved from something, we are saved for something and to something. We are not only saved from something, we are saved for something and to something. The life that Jesus promises is not merely a life of safety and community. It is a life that is exceedingly, abundantly, more than necessary, superior, uncommon, above and beyond what we can expect. All of these words can be applied to help us better understand what Jesus means by life to the full. And all of it is available to every single one of us. We'll come back to the fullness of life in a moment, but let's read a bit more. Jesus now shifts the metaphor that he's using. In the previous verses, Jesus has identified himself as uh, using one of the seven I am's that are in the Gospel of John. And uh, he has called himself, I am the gate. He said, I'm the gate or I'm the door, literally. Now he's going to give us another one of those seven I am statements, verses 11 through 13. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd. It does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Now, if Jesus is the good shepherd, there must be a bad shepherd too. And in fact, there were many. Jesus draws this imagery from the Old Testament. The prophet Ezekiel, verse 30, uh, chapter 34, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel says. The son of, man, son of man prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? The shepherds of God were the kings of Israel. The shepherds of God were the kings. Shepherds are kings who do not care for their flock, Israel, are not good shepherds. Later in Ezekiel 34, God promises that he will remove the bad shepherds from tending the flock. And that he, God, will become their shepherd, their king instead. He will become their king, he will take care of them, and he will bring them home. And then God says this in Ezekiel 34, verses 30 and 31. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and they, that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. The imagery that Jesus uses in John 10 is drawn from here. The shepherd king. God, who will personally shepherd the flock and give them life to the full, has come to them in Jesus. In the next few verses, there's a phrase that Jesus uses several times. In verse 11, he said that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now in verse 14 and following, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. He means the Gentiles. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life. Only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down 
and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Altogether, Jesus speaks of laying down his life five times in eight verses. This is significant. And because you and I know where this story is headed, we know that not only is Jesus talking about his crucifixion, he's also talking about his resurrection. He will lay down his life and he has authority to take it up again. Jesus is the door to life to the full. And he is the good shepherd who lays down his life so that we can have and enjoy that fullness. In Matthew 20... Just to complicate things, Matthew 20, after James and John, with the help of their mother, have tried to promote themselves in status, Jesus tells them that self-promotion and the exercise of authority over others is the way of the Gentiles and the Roman government. And then he redirects them, Matthew 20, verses 26 to 28. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. What are we to do with this apparent contradiction? Hopefully you can hear that. Jesus lays down his life, and we are called to lay down our lives just as he did. He will say something similar again in next week's passage. Which is it? Is it life to the full or is it a laying down of our lives? Is it positive or is it negative? Is it a gift or does it cost us something? And the answer to all of these questions is yes to all of them. It is true. All of these things are true. Abundant, full, extravagant, over-the-top life is in fact the same as laying down our lives for Christ or for one another or for others. Abundant life, over-the-top life, extravagant life is in fact the same thing as laying down our lives for Christ, for one another, and others. Jesus and other spiritual writers since his time have often used images of things in the natural world, living things to communicate to us spiritual realities and all that God has for us. Seeds grow into plants and bear fruit. Yeast spreads through dough. Children grow into adults. So much so that if growth or maturity are not happening in the natural world, in these physical things that we see, we know intuitively something's wrong with that. Something needs to be fixed. Something needs attention. You see, we grasp it when we look at the natural world, but we do not always grasp it when we look at the spiritual world, the spiritual level. Thomas Dubay, in his book, Fire Within, a book on the development of the life of prayer, says this about our dilemma. We are not alarmed about truncated spiritual development. Yet Jesus said that he came not only that we might have life, but also that we might have it abundantly. And St. Paul insisted that we are to live so intensely that we are to be filled with the utter fullness of God, nothing less. Unfortunately, many baptized persons depart this life without ever realizing that they were destined to a deep communion with God. Unfortunately, many baptized persons depart this life without ever realizing that they were destined to a deep communion with God. And here Dubay does two things. Two things. He, equates, he equates the abundant life that Christ talks about to deep communion with God in the here and now. And he combines the promise of life to the full that Jesus made with 
Paul's prayer in Ephesians 13 that we be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Many of you may remember that last fall I invited you to join me in consistently praying that prayer from Ephesians 3 verses 14 to 21. I have put that prayer back in the Bible app for you to pray again and more consistently if you would like. If you don't have the Bible app on your tablet or on your phone, that's what it looks like. Go get it wherever you get your apps and when you download it, make sure your location services are turned on. If you click the little tab, there are little lines that mean more. Click events, we should pop right up. Our Bible app live event that has a lot of uh, announcements of what's going on, but also questions for further reflection and resources. The prayer is in there, as well as some other things. If we want to experience the life that God has for us, we will live and walk in the way of Jesus, the way Jesus lived and walked. If we want to experience all that God has for us, the life that God has for us, we will live and walk in the way of Jesus, and we will do it in the way that Jesus lived it and walked it. And that way was a way of self-giving, self-giving, sacrificial love. We will walk this way, and we will not give in to the lies of society. There are many here among us who feel that life is but a joke. But you and I, we've been through that. This is not our fate. So let us not talk falsely now, for the hour is getting late, late, late. I do not pretend to know everything that Bob Dylan meant by that line. But if Jesus sang it, I know what he meant. And what he meant was this. Let us not give in to the lies that our society shouts at us every single day. Let us not give in to the lie that our political opinions and passions, right, left, and center, will save us. Let us not give in to the lie that the kingdom of God will be built on earth through power and domination. Let us not give in to the lie that we can somehow achieve resurrection victory without first dying to ourselves. What lies have we believed in? What lies have we given our lives to? Friends, the, the way of Jesus is beautiful and challenging. It is bright and daunting. It is joyful and sacrificial. It is free and expensive. The way of Jesus invites us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. Laying down our lives as Jesus laid down his is the way for us to enjoy life to the full in the here and now. Laying down our lives to Jesus. Laying down our lives to one another as sisters and brothers in Christ. Laying down our lives for our neighbors. And the only way we're going to get there is if we are on a journey to have more and more of Christ formed in us, Christiformity, Christ formed and ever forming within us, that deeper communion with God. And that is what we, all of us, hunger for, whether we realize it or not. Or let's put it another way. We are all being shepherded by something. We are all being shepherded by something or someone. Who is your chief shepherd? Who is your chief shepherd? Is it Christ, the good shepherd, the shepherd above all other shepherds, the door, the gate, the bread of life, the true vine, the way, the truth, the life, the light of the world? Or is it the bad shepherd of social media or your favorite news channel or commentator? Is it the bad shepherd of materialism or individualism or some other ism? 
Or is it the bad shepherd of your own selfish motives and desires? The season of Lent is a season not only to remember Christ's life and sacrificial death on the cross, it is also the season in which we are reminded of Jesus' call upon all of us that we too would lay down our lives for him, for one another, and for our neighbors, even our enemies. I stumbled upon this picture here. Uh, the TikTok video from a covenant pastor named John Fogle. I found him on Instagram. But... And this is a picture of a Russian soldier, maybe some of you have seen it, surrendering to Ukrainians. They didn't capture him and throw him in jail. They didn't, I don't know what they did after this, but in this picture, they fed him. They gave him warm tea. The woman holding the phone there, she's FaceTiming his mother in Russia to tell him he's okay. At that point, as you can imagine, the soldier begins to weep. I've linked that story with the video in your Bible app live event. What an image of the kind of people we can become, friends, people who lay down our lives and choose not to give in to the lies of society that says we must hate our enemies and defeat them at all costs. Lent is traditionally a season when we give something up, when we surrender something. We can also take on something, some positive practice, perhaps more intentionally making time to pray or, and how we read the scriptures or finding a need that we can serve. As you heard earlier, immediately following the service this morning, you were invited to join us for a light lunch of soup and bread and to take part in together making a Lenten centerpiece to help us mark the days and to pray through the days of the season of Lent. It's right across the parking lot in the Life Center. Uh, even if you did not sign up, we've tried to allow for some extras in that, so please show up. And then you also heard, as we've done in recent years, that if you would like to receive daily Lenten text to your phone, you can text the word at Lent ECC to the number 81010. So 81010 goes in the top, to at Lent ECC goes in the body, and you will get those um, almost every day, I think, starting tomorrow. If you'd rather get it by email, you can let the office know at ECC at ECCLife.net, and we'll get you signed up for that. But... Given that our Good Shepherd calls us to abundant, extravagant life in Him, given that He calls us to imitate Him in the laying down of His life as the way we are actually going to be able to experience life to the full, I want to invite you to engage in the spiritual practice of surrender. The spiritual practice of surrender. Prayerfully ask God how you can make practicing surrendering as a way of life over the next few weeks. Let me give you an example of what I've been trying to do. I mentioned earlier that during prayer um, a couple of weeks ago, I began to realize that Good Friday is not the only time Jesus laid down his life for us. And in fact, since his, from his conception onward, he was living a life of laying down his life. He was living a lifelong practice of surrender. His first act was to submit himself to the small confines of Mary's womb. Phenomenal cosmic power, itty-bitty living space. Then he was born into a, a difficult world, even if things were going well. But you add to that that he was born into a land occupied by an unjust foreign army. He came not to rebel or to overthrow, 
Not even really to transform anything, at least initially, but simply to live within it. You see, God loved us by becoming one of us. God loved us by becoming one of us. And this, this reality, even before his death of the cross, was a cruciform or a cross-shaped life, if ever there was one. The eternal one who lived outside of time, who holds all things together with his powerful word, submitted to the slow death march of more than 30 years on earth. And he did it so that you and I could have eternal, abundant life here and now as well as in the hereafter. So my prayer as I consider these things, my prayer was simply to surrender to whatever came my way. To surrender interruptions, needs, frustrations, victories, joys, sorrows, all of it. And they came. They came. And each time something came my way, I tried to treat it as if it had come from the hand of God to me. I tried to treat it as if it had come from the hand of God to me. That doesn't mean that everything that come, came my way or comes your way is coming from the hand of God. It means that in that moment, whatever it was, it was the will of God that I steward over that moment well. That I would submit to the work of God in it and through it. That I would surrender to that work and allow God to work through me. Was it challenging? Of course it was. Did I or do I always do it perfectly? Of course not. But I keep trying. What about you? In what ways might God call you to practice this discipline of surrender during the season of Lent and beyond? It's a pretty powerful way to live life to the full. What would it look like for you to practice the discipline of surrender? Surrender to one another, surrender to our neighbors, even our enemies, surrender to God. Would you join me in a moment of silent prayer? And let's just ask God to speak to us and then I will close this in prayer. Spirit, we ask now that you would come and speak to our hearts what you want us to hear, how you want us to respond. We open ourselves to you. Loving and gracious and all-powerful God, you who submitted yourself to our nature, you who surrendered yourself to the process of conception and birth and life, you who submitted and surrendered yourself to journeying through your life as one who knew God and lived for God, and sought to hear your Father speak and to obey your Father. You who surrendered yourself to torture, to death, 
on the cross. Lord, help us now to surrender ourselves to you. Help us, O oh God, to know that our future is so set, so certain, that we can lay down our lives for you, for one another, for our neighbors, and for our enemies. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.